All right, well, good evening, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for coming out on our rainy evening. My name is Reginald Harris, and I'd like to welcome you to the Pratt Library and the Light Street Branch. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, the Pratt Library section of this, I, this is part of our regular schedule of, well, actually, no, this isn't regular. This is a special uh, event. Um, we have our compass here, over here at the table, which lists our various events. And I wanted to highlight um, the City Lit Festival on the 19th. And also, right here at Light Street, it will be Library Idol on the 17th where you can get a chance to see me channeling Randy Jackson. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, tonight on behalf of the Maryland Center for the Book and the Pratt Free Library, it's my very great pleasure to welcome Michael Collier to the Light Street Branch. Um, this program is part of a statewide celebration of poetry entitled Poetry's Here at Your Library, brought to you by the Maryland Center for the Book and the Maryland Humanities Council. Don't hide the poster, okay? Um, funding for the program provided by the Institute uh, of Museum and Library Services, LSTA grant funds, and through the Division of Library Development Services, Maryland State Department of Education. During the months of April, May, and June, uh, Mr. Collier, along with past and present poet laureates, Michael Glazer, Linda Paston, and Lucille Clifton, uh, have been sharing and will be sharing their poetry and celebrating Maryland's literary heritage at 11 different public libraries across the state. Um, in conjunction with the visit of one of these celebrated poets, each library system receives a laureate shelf consisting of works by Maryland Poets Laureates, Poets Laureate to add to library's collections. And CDs? Two? Books? Yeah, okay, mm -hmm. the books. Okay, it's my very great pleasure to have Julia Kradovitz. I, which yes. I just messed up. Hey, I got it right. Wow. Okay, great. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, from the Maryland Humanities Council here with the books. Yes, we have. Um, these will be going to the Emma Pratt Library. Uh, we have a, f a few selections from some of our current and former laureates. Uh, we've got Dark Wild Realm and The Ledge here, um, as well as Linda Paston's uh, books, Carnival Evening and Queen of Brady Country. And we have some by Reed Whitmore and Lucille Clifton. So these will be available um, for you all to come check out. And, um, after the reading, you know, I think it's always nice after you've heard it, you know, heard it aloud and heard it spoken the way that you know the poet ex would like you to hear it. You know, to go and read it and see what you missed or see, you know, how it, it's going to resonate in your own mind. So these will be available for checkout um, after after they're cataloged <laughs> and after they're logged in. And maybe before not that, right after the program. yeah, maybe not, take a minute. Maybe at that point you could go buy one. But uh, these will be available. And um, I'd like to thank Anna uh, Pratt Library and Reggie Harris and uh, Melanie Oliver and especially Michael Collier for coming this long way in the rain and um, this room. It feels like a, a, we're having a clandestine meeting down here. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> secret poetry. Right. We're having a secret meeting of, of poetry lovers down in the basement. So, you know, you've got to be pretty hardcore to come out on the night when it's raining like this and I think you're really going to be rewarded. So. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and as you've noticed on your uh, seats, there is a uh, form uh, which we're going to ask you to fill out and please leave uh, as well. Leave on the table as you as you exit. No one gets out without signing the form. Um, but in any case, now on to the main event here. Um, in addition to being one of the coolest and most down to earth people you're likely to meet, uh, Michael Collier is the National Book of Critics Award Circle final National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. Professor of English at University of Maryland and director of the Grid Love Writers Conference. His books include The Ledge, The Clasp, and other poems, The Folded Heart, The Neighbor, Make Us Wave Back, Essays on Poetry and Influence, and most recently, Wild Dark Realm. Uh, he's received Guggenheim and National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships, Discovery Nation Award, and other honors. Uh, Francis Phillips wrote this about his latest book, Wild Dark Realm, in the Washington Post. Michael Collier writes elegant, accessible, closely observed poems. His writing seeks, <clears throat> excuse me, seeks the unstable spaces between light and shadow, waking and sleep, spirit and body, and the places where the living and dead pass one another. It's a midlife book in the best possible sense, a continued questioning, some sober knowledge, and an openness to what's next. And we're all very eager to hear what's next as well, so ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Collier. Thanks, uh, Reggie and Julia. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, some of you, maybe all of you know that I went to the wrong uh, branch of the library uh, first. So uh, thanks for your patience. Uh, I have a friend 
who has a, a poem that's called um, The History of My S- Stupidity, Volume 13. <laughs> and, and that's how I felt a little bit when I was standing banging on the locked doors of the Pratt uh, Library downtown branch. And the, a guard who was sitting way far away um, heard me and came and opened the door. And I said, um, I think I'm supposed to be giving a poetry reading here. <laughs> And she said, well, no, it's closed. And, and, and she did find out where I was supposed to be, which was very helpful. They hear that all the time. What's that? They hear that all the time. Yeah, I'm sure they do hear that. I'm supposed to give a poetry reading here. <laughs> well, uh, when I was um, appointed as a poet laureate 2001, it was shortly after my good friend Roland Flint, who had been the poet laureate, um, preceding me uh, died and I thought I would read a couple of Roland's poems Roland was a remarkable guy he was not a tall guy but he was a big guy and uh, he grew up in North Dakota on a farm um, and he, he had this kind of remarkable uh, uh, presence he could he, he made me laugh so many times until I started to cry. Uh, he was that funny. And he was the kind of person who uh, didn't know just one version of a joke, but he knew several versions of the joke, and he could, he could tell them. Um, he had a huge sadness in his life, uh, which is touched on in this poem. It's the title poem of his book, Stubborn. And it's kind of long, but it's a story. There's a couple stories. Stubborn. On a rainy Sunday, I have an optional meeting with my students, and 11 show up. We have a good time talking, 90 minutes or so, about James' rights to a blossoming pear tree. Afterwards, though I had thought to stay in my office, I decide to go home because I'm too agitated to work having drunk a large cup of strong coffee instead of my usual decaffeinated stuff. I call Rosalind to tell her I'm coming home, and she seems glad, but as she had earlier this morning, also a bit depressed. Why? She thinks it's because, although she's happy to be going back to New Zealand tomorrow, to New New Zealand tomorrow, she's sad about leaving her sons and me at Christmas. So I decide to get her some flowers on the way home. I buy a bunch each of blue and white irises and three yellow sweetheart roses. At the busy florist, there is a woman of 27 or 28 wearing a sweatshirt with my school's name on it. I don't know her, but she glances as if she recognizes me. She has thick blonde hair with some soft reds in it, and I think it is not so red or fine as my son's reds in it. And I think... I'll say that again. And I think... Why don't you guys come in? Come on in. No, there's, there's chairs. Come on. Come on in. I'm going to read for four hours, so you want to be sitting, you want to be sitting down in a chair. That's okay. So I'm reading a poem uh, by Roland Flint who was the poet laureate before me, and he died a couple months before I was appointed uh, to take his place. So anyways, he's on, he's on the way home from his office. He taught at, uh, at Georgetown University, and he stopped to buy some flowers for his wife, who's been a little depressed during the day. And uh, he sees this woman of 27 or 8. He likes, he likes her hair. She's wearing a Georgetown T-shirt. She has thick blonde hair with some soft reds in it, And I think it is not so red or fine as my son's hair was. I also think she looks some like the daisies she's picking out. And I think to put in a poem sometime, a woman's hair with the colors of daisies' eye. Driving home, I come aware how beautifully Iris folds in and out upon itself like someone in grief, like my mother in hers, her long, sad life, which ended 77 days ago. It occurs to me, though I had told the clerk no ferns because they remind me of funeral sprays, 
that when she absently asked me again if I wanted ferns, I said yes as absently, which makes me realize how much my mother is on my mind, buried on the 11th anniversary of the boy's death. Also, not quite refusing it, but resisting it, I can't keep out the solace. He is with her now. And even as I'm annoyed to suppose I'll put this too in a poem sometime, I think of the boy's mother, of my mother, my wife, these women in their sorrows, and consider some failures touching all of them, the irises and roses beside me on the seat. On Nebraska Avenue, I see a very small boy walking on the grass between the sidewalk and the street, alone except for a big golden retriever near him. I can't tell if they are together. When it comes to me, the boy is really alone, so near the street and only two years old or younger, my stomach moves with fear. I pull over, stop the car, get out, and ask a jogger who is slowing to a walk if he knows the boy. No, he doesn't. I try to be calm and talk quietly to the boy. Where do you live? Where is your house? He doesn't answer. The car is blowing by, but seems to wave toward the dog. I say, let's go there and try to smile him into walking along with me, aware the jogger has stopped and, as I would do, is wondering about me and what I might be up to. I don't try to take the boy's hand. Mine, I see, is trembling. He doesn't speak. He may not be old enough to speak. Then I hear someone scared and calling. We're next to a steeply banked yard behind a wall, chest high. I see the parents running down and hear them calling a name. I pick up the boy under his arm slowly as I can and hold him up so they can see him. He does not cry out. The mother is nodding yes and waves relief. They are not coming from the direction I was trying to get the boy to go. I put him down and now he takes my hand as we walk back around the corner toward his parents. When he sees his father, he pulls away and making wordless noises runs to him back onto the grass next to the curb. The father is so angry with himself, he begins yelling, Michael, where did you go? And I say too loudly, hearing my voice is shaking. I think he's very frightened now, hoping he will stop yelling at his son. And he does stop. Michael wants his father to come with him back to the corner where he points to the dog. Ah, says his father and calls to him. Benny. Benny comes running. Michael had been following Benny. We talk. They thank me. They had just now noticed Michael somehow got out in the rain. As the guilty father talks me back to my car, I answer carefully, trying to hold my voice down. I tell him I understand that my oldest daughter somehow got out when she was 18 months and almost got into the street, how a neighbor took her in and called me. I understand. I don't want to say more. I'm afraid I'll start crying, but I have to to make it clear. I tell him my son was killed in the street like this. He says, really, and thanks me again, and I leave. I don't start crying until I get back to the car, and I'm furious and groan with it to know, even then, in spite of myself, that I'll write about this as well, pulled through the pages by something as if in the hand to write it down here. Besides despair of writing it well enough is this revulsion at smearing grief in order to do it, to use a poem as if you were trading what you have lived through for words, selling out by using the worst secrets. But the words come anyway. So when finally I have to write them down, I fear I may be stupidly tempting death. And yet I write them as if my life is the poem to give. Its work come clearly saying, Go and write, do what has been given to do, and if it is given in grief, accept it there, where you may see wherever else, whatever else is given. This time, Michael following Benny in the rain, he made you feel in his small hand bones the unknown body of his living, 
his unrepeatable life, which you write down as if it were your own, as if it's prayer Michael might have his, is something mending yours, and maybe it is. And then the other poem of Roland's I'll I'll read uh, is called The Gift. Now here is a poem for Nancy, who, along with Mark, let me read her my brand new bourbon whiskey poem. Not only because she let me and agreed to my rules beforehand that they must like it, say so, and mean it. And not only because when I read it, she liked it and meant it, but also, and overridingly, may the mystery bless her, because she said, wait, first I'm going to lie down. We were in Mark's studio, and she lay down on the couch, closing her eyes, the better to welcome my whiskey poem. Without ever knowing it, all my obscure scribbler's life, I have wanted to write one poem a woman beautiful as Nancy would want, like that, to lie down for. I thank her for revealing this, for liking my poem about whiskey, and for meaning it, and most for lying down. When I go to the writer's last place, I will say for credentials, I am Flint. I wrote one poem Nancy the Muse lay down for. What was terrible about uh, when Roland got sick, he really didn't want to see anybody, which was an odd thing for a man who had been so gregarious in his life. Uh, well, maybe it's not such an odd thing. Maybe it, it, he just didn't want anybody to, to see him in a kind of diminished state. But it was a, it was a sadness for uh, a lot of us uh, who were his friends because we, we really didn't um, get to say goodbye to him um, in a proper way if there is a proper way. I thought what I would do, and I've never done this before, is read a a poem from each of my books. This means I have to go back into uh, my youth, uh, which I, and I don't go back there very often in terms of of, uh, poems. Uh, But I wanted to read a poem that I wrote probably in 1983, after, my, uh, after the first time I visited the Baltimore Aquarium. So probably a lot of you have been there, uh, maybe once because you wanted to, and then many other times because people were coming into town to visit, and that's what you do. I haven't been in many years, so I don't know if this still goes on, but do they still have people in the tanks cleaning them? Okay. So it's just called the Aquarium. The trigger fish and painted queens add curves to their everlasting circuits to avoid the woman working in the aquarium. Blue scuba tanks striped with yellow lightning bolts, red fins, orange gloves, black skin, transform her into a species jury-rigged, though a patch of tan skin between calf and thigh, like the cutaway in a diagram, shows human tendon and muscle flexing as she pedals, wipes the aquarium glass with a cloth, or dusts mottled armatures of fake coral with a long boot brush. Behind her mask, her eyes are clear and dry, but ringed with black mascara, larger, lighter than our grounded selves who wave to her. She waves back, spits her mouthpiece out, smiles, and pulls a glove off with her teeth, then fits it to the air hose. The glove fills and rises like a blowfish, disturbed to be seen by what we see. Unconsciously, we hold our breath and wait until the woman returns the mouthpiece to her mouth before we exhale, letting go the bubbles of our wonder and fear of the world behind glass, which we press against to follow the woman's upward swim as she retrieves the glove that bobs orange and optically fat, a cloud in the aquarium sky. Have you ever seen that where they, they pop off, you know, all that coral and stuff is fake in there? 
and it's just stuck. It's you know, it's plugged in. Have you ever seen them? They pop it off. It's great. <laughs> what do the fish think? Do fish think? Dolphins, maybe. Are dolphins fish? They're mammals. Um, and then from uh, my second book, I'd like to read a, a, a couple poems. The, the first is called, uh, well, maybe I'll just read one. The first is called The Diver. And uh, my, I have four sisters. And my second oldest sister was a, uh, an Olympic springboard diver in 1964. Uh, she won a silver medal in, in Tokyo. And she would have won the gold, but she flopped one of her dives. We always remind her of that. <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, so this is called The Diver. And as a kid, I was dragged around to all her diving meets, along with my other sisters. <clears throat> On television, my sister emerges three meters above the water like something carved from light, where she balances on the springboard and like a graceful sleepwalker extends her arms as counterweights. A doll of perfect will, she rules her fear of heights by tracing little circles with cupped hands and then drops her arms to start the swift wing beats of a creature who has taught herself not to fly but to land, more intricate than flight for the twists and knots and folded arms that make her appear wounded in midair beyond recovery. Though recovery comes quickly once she clasps her hands and twines her thumbs to make a sieve through which the water passes and allows her head to enter, then shoulders and hips. And this is how I always see her, half in, half out of water, her body perpendicular toes matched, as if, there is no er- as if there is no place for error in the world, and all her body's perfection was meant to disappear beneath her splash, a light she carves and shatters. Well, there's a kind of companion poem to that, uh, that, no, I won't read it. <laughs> It, I'll tell you about it, right? Uh, it's a poem about... Uh, oh, I'll read it. You're not supposed to paraphrase poems. It's called The Cave. In, uh, so how many of, of you uh, students from St. Paul's have uh, read uh, Plato? You know, the anal- you know the analogy of the cave? You guys know that? Yeah. Okay. I'm with you then. So that, it's, this poem is kind of based on that. I think of Plato and the limited technology of his cave, the primitive projection incapable of fast forward or reverse stop action or slow-mo, and the instant replay that would have allowed him to verify once and for all justice or the good. Such is the way my family did, hour upon hour in the dark, watching films of my sister diving, going over her failures and successes like a school of philosophers, arguing fiercely, pulling her up from the depths of the blue water, feet first, her splash blooming around her hips, then dying out into a calm, flat sheet as her fingertips appeared. Sometimes we kept her suspended in her mimesis of gainer and twist, until the projector's lamp burned blue with smoke and the smell of acetate filled the room. Always from the shabby armchairs of our dialectic, we corrected the imperfect attitude of her toes, the tuck of her chin, took her back to the awkward approach or weak hurdle, and everywhere restored the half-promise of her form. So that each abstract gesture performed in an instant of falling, revealed that fond liaison of time and movement, the moment held in the air, the illusion of something whole, something true. And though what we saw on the screen would never change, never submit to our arguments, we believed we might see it more clearly and understand that what we judged was a result of poor light 
or the apparent size of things, or the change an element evokes, such as when we allowed her to re-enter the water, and all at once her body skewed with refraction, an effect we could not save her from, though we hauled her up again and again. And then I grew up um, in Phoenix, Arizona, and I left as soon as I could because I just, well, it's not an uncommon thing I, I, that I think, you know, um, to, not, to not like where you were born. Uh, and I had a really fierce reaction to uh, the desert as a kid. My, much of my family still lives there. Um, and I just felt it was the, the most boring place in the world and uh, the, the ugliest and, of course, hot. And, and, okay, it's dry, but it's really, really hot. Uh, so I left, I left as soon as I could after high school, and um, I never thought I would write anything about it. And then about 15 years or so ago, maybe a little bit longer, these people from the neighborhood I grew up in, that it was as if they just showed up in my room. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't spooky or anything like that, but they just... They, they kept kind of appearing uh, in memory. And so I started, I started to write about them. And one of the first ones I wrote about was this guy who was, the barber, who was a barber, and he lived next door. Um, and uh, this is the poem. It describes one of these old-fashioned barber shops. The barber. Even in death, he roams the yard in his boxer shorts, plowing the push mower through Bermuda grass, bowling it against the fence and tree trunks, chipping its twisted blades on the patio's edge. The chalky flint and orange spark of struck concrete floats in the air, tastes like metal, smells like the slow burn of hair on his electric clippers. And smelling it, I feel the hot shoe of the shaver as he guided it in a high arc around my ears, then set the sharp, toothy edge against my sideburns to trim them square, and how he used his huge stomach to butt the chair, and his flat hand palming my head to keep me still, pressing my chin down as he cleaned the ragged wisps of hair along my neck. A fat, inconsolable man whose skill and pleasure was to clip and shear, to make raw and stubble all that grew in this world, expose the scalp, the place of roots and nerves, and make vulnerable there in the double mirrors of his shop the long stem muscles of our necks. And so we hung below his scissors in it, and so we hung below his license in its cheap black frame above the violet light of the scissors shed with its glass jars of germicide and the long, tapered combs soaking in its blue iridescence. Gruff, when he wasn't silent, he was a neighbor to fear, yet we trusted him beyond his anger, beyond his privacy. He was like a father we could hate, a foil for our unspent vengeance, though vengeance was always his. He sent us back into the world, burning and itching, alive with the horror of closing eyes in the pinkish darkness of his shop, and having felt the horse hair brush, talc-filled, cloying, too sweet for boyhood, whisked across the face. And then... Um, what happened as I started to write these poems is I realized, man, there were a lot of weirdos in the neighborhood. Or not so much weirdos, but just, it was interesting. There were all these dramas that went on that I, I just, I had paid attention to. Uh, but I had forgotten in a way. And this is one of those poems. It's called 2212 West Flower Street. When I think of the man who lived in the house behind ours, and how he killed his wife and then went into his own backyard a few short feet from my bedroom window and put the blue-black barrel of his 30 6 inside his mouth and pulled the trigger. I don't think about how much of the barrel he had to swallow before his 
fingers reached the trigger, nor the bullet that passed out the back of his neck, nor the wild orbit of blood that followed his crazy dance before he collapsed in a clatter over the trash cans, which woke me. Instead, I think of how quickly his neighbors restored his humanity, remembering his passion for stars, which brought him into his yard on clear nights with a telescope and tripod, or the way he stood in the alley in his rubber boots and emptied the red slurry from his rock tumblers before he washed the glassy chunks of agate and petrified wood. And we remembered, too, the gooseneck lamp on the kitchen table that burned after dinner and how he worked in its bright circle to fashion flies and lures, the hook held firmly in a jeweler's vise while he wound the nylon thread around the haft and feathers. And bending closer to the light, he concentrated on tying the knots, pulling them tight against the coiled threads, and bending closer still, turning his head slightly toward the window, his eyes lost in the dark yard, he took the thread ends in his teeth and chewed them free. Perhaps he saw us standing on on the sidewalk, watching him. Perhaps he didn't. He was a man so much involved with what he did. And what he did was so much of his loneliness, our presence didn't matter. So careful and precise were all his passions. He must have felt the hook with its tiny barbs against his lip, sharp and trigger-shaped. It must have been a common danger for him, the wet, clear membrane of his mouth threatened by the flies and lures, the beautiful enticements he made with his own hands, and the small, loose thread ends which clung to the roof of his mouth and which he tried to spit out like an annoyance that would choke him. I mean, not really, not really weirdos, but I guess just in contrast to my sense of, you know, my kind of callous sense as a, as a kid that nothing happened, that nothing was interesting in the world around me um, when there was plenty that, that was interesting. Um, and it's weird how memory, how you absorb things that you don't even, you don't even know you've absorbed them. And then when you start writing about them, they, they, they come out in um, surprising ways. Um, this is called Argos, and it uh, refers to uh, Odysseus's dog. And I don't need to explain it because it's, it's really all, all in the poem. But this is a poem I started writing in 1983 uh, and finished in about 1998 or 1999. And I didn't, I didn't work on it you know, continually. I would get it going and I would stop. And I just knew I would finish it at some point. But, um, and it relates in some ways to the, the poems in The Neighbor. I, I, I wrote it way before The Neighbor poems. Um, and I think it was a kind of precursor to that Argos. If you think Odysseus too strong and brave to cry, that the God-loved, God-protected hero when he returned to Ithaca disguised, intent to check up on his wife and candidly apprised the condition of his kingdom, steeled himself resolutely against surprise and came into his land cold-hearted, clear-eyed, ready for revenge, then you read Homer as I did, too fast, knowing you'd be tested for plot and major happenings, skimming forward to the massacre, the shambles engineered with Telemachus by turning beggar and taking up the challenge of the bow. Reading this way, you probably missed the tear Odysseus shed for his decrepit dog, Argos, who's nothing but a bag of bones asleep atop a refuse pile outside the palace gates. The dog is not a god in earthly clothes, but in its own disguise of death and destitution is more like Ithaca itself. And if you returned home after 20 years, you might weep for the dog you long ago abandoned, rising from the garbage of its bed, its instinct of recognition still intact, enough will to wag its tail, lift its head, but little more. Years ago, you had the chance to read that page more closely, but instead you raced ahead like Odysseus, cocksure with your plan. Now the past is what you study. Regile and speed give over to grief, 
so you might stop and desiring to weep, weep more deeply. Uh, this is this is kind of a seasonal poem because it's um, it's about baseball. And uh, since we are in Baltimore, I can I can tell you this took place uh, at Memorial Stadium the last year uh, that the the Orioles played there. The wave. Vendors with racks of soft drinks, pallets of cotton candy, ice cream in bright insulated bags, pretzels in metal cabinets, and the peanut man with his yellow peanut earring. Money folded between fingers, spokes of green waving in the glad pandemonium, greeting the bud man with his quick pouring mechanism strapped to his wrist like a prosthesis, or the hot dog guy genuflecting in the steep aisles, anointing the roll and weenie with mustard before passing it down to the skinny kid sitting between fat parents. In the air above us, the flittering birds, attracted and repelled by planetary field lights, swoop in ecstatic arcs, trapped under a dark, invisible dome. The park organ, the jumbotron, the mascot, pacing atop the visitor's dugout, taunting them with oversized antics, while the groundskeepers miss the infield with the fire hose, leavening the calm, raked earth. Later, in the fifth or sixth, two soldiers sitting next to me who have paced each other with a beer and inning and kept their buzz buffed with a flask, take off their shirts though the night's cool and move to the front row where they face the crowd, sweep up their arms and command us to rise from our seats. At first, only a few respond, but like molecules quickening or cells dividing, or herds stampeding, we coalesce, orison provoking unison, section by section, as if township by township are standing up and sitting down becomes the Simon says I, the Simon says and mother may I of a nation, as it runs through our rippling, shimmering, upraised hands that form the crest of a wave built on the urges and urgings of the soldiers, whose skin is slick with sweat or some other labor, and whose goal now for all of us, for themselves, for the players on the field, is simply to stay in the wave, to keep it going for as long as they can. Um, since I got here late, if some of it's it's uh, seven thirty, if some of you were thinking that he can't possibly go beyond seven thirty, uh, and you had plans, you wanted to go somewhere, I, I will not take offense. You can you you can get up and and leave, except the the guys from the school. I know you're not allowed to leave. <laughs> but really, if if you had plans to to go, uh, don't you know? Just get up. I'm not going to read for a. Uh, a whole lot longer. I, I, really, I'm not reading for four hours. <laughs> Just another hour and a half. Um, the the book that uh, Reggie referred to when he read the excerpt from a, a review in the Washington Post is my most recent book of poems, and it's really a a, a long elegy. Uh, to or because of uh, several friends that died in a very short period of time. Uh, Roland Flint uh, was one of them. Uh, friends of very, very varying ages from um, 92 to, I guess, 35, some, somewhere in there. And so I started to write these poems in response to that, to sort of figure out what to do um, you know, with the grief that, that, that you feel. And it was weird because... Um, I never felt uh, as if I was less in control of what I was doing. I, mean, I really felt as if I was riding out of some kind of uh, dark space, in, in a way. And the first poem is called Birds Appearing in a Dream. And, and lots of birds, like, the, like those neighbors from Phoenix, Arizona, who came and wanted to be written about, all these birds started to come uh, into my study and, and wanted to be written about. So this is called Birds Appearing in a Dream. One had feathers like a blood-streaked koi, 
Another a tail of color-coded wires. One was a blackbird stretching orchid wings. Another a flicker with a wounded head. All flew like leaves fluttering to escape, bright, circulating in burning air, and all returned when the air cleared. One was a kingfisher trapped in its bower, deep in the ground, miles from water. Everything is real, and everything isn't. Some had names, and some didn't. Named and nameless shapes of birds, at night my hand can touch your feathers, and then I wipe the vernix from your wings. You who have made bright things from shadows. You who have crossed the distances to roost in me. And uh, one of the uh, one of the people who died was a, a roommate of mine in college, and he was uh, 51. He was playing basketball. He was in really good shape. And it's one of those stories when he just he just dropped dead in front of uh, his teammates. And this is a little poem about about that. Three days after our friend died, having dropped to his knees at the feet of his teammates. We are sitting in a long, narrow, windowless chapel, staring at his casket that runs parallel to the pews. It's like a balance beam or a bench you could sit on. Floral sprays around it, a lectern behind, and a priest nobody knew, a man I'd seen in the parking lot pulling on a beret and stamping out a cigarette all in one move as he emerged from his car holding a black book. And now he is reassuring us that our friend is in a better place, that God too soon has called him home, a mystery faith endures. Occasionally, he looks down to check his watch, the habit of a man who always has a next place to be, which must be why he barely stays to finish the job. Our friend had the most beautiful voice, and his guitar was as cool and smart soulful in its registers. When he played, he gave his body to the music, his eyes closed sometimes and his head bent, sheltering what he made of himself, his fingers knowing the next place and the next, his voice too, taking each of us with him. Um, so it's, you know, it's, all, it's really kind of all about death, uh, and one of the things you do when you're writing, you're writing elegies is that you're, you're thinking um, the best about the people who have died, right? That's what happens when people die. We all of a, we all of a sudden kind of think how, how great they were because we know they'll never come back. And I realized that there was a poem to be written about someone who, who had died uh, a, a, a long time ago. And at least for me, I'm grateful that he'll never be around again. So this is called Elegy for a Long Dead Friend. I know it sounds like an awful thing, but you know, it's the truth. <laughs> if I had gone first, maybe he would be, he had, have written this poem, right? But no, he went first. So Elegy for a Long Dead Friend. Last night when you appeared. See, a lot of these people come back in dreams, right? Last night when you appeared, you brought the sacks of shoes and folded clothes that stood waiting in your garage for someone else to remove the day you died. Because you were laid out at the corners when I arrived, you couldn't know what I saw. Boots and sneakers, sandals jammed in grocery bags, shirts and pants no longer stylish. Months before, what was it you said? Don't come around here again. So why these visits? Why the burden of this evidence? And silent as you are, does your presence mean forgiveness? There was also, you should know, a flat tire that gave your car a slouched, defeated look. I saw, it before the, saw, I saw it before I saw the discards. In Dante's hell, the souls spend their time repaying themselves with their own sins. He witnessed their anguish but was rarely moved, and Virgil never. 
Next time you visit, bring that tire. Wear it like a necklace, and we'll set it on fire. <laughs> it's not a heartless poem. There's a lot of heart in it, I feel. Um, so then I'll just read a couple um, uh, uh, newer, newer poems. And uh, a couple of them, well, they're all about fam- family members. They're missing the best ones. <laughs> My father is um, turning 94 um, tomorrow. Now, here's a couple of poems about, about him. It'll sound like he's much worse off than he is, but he's... Uh, He survived a bad year last year. Uh, This is called Dale. You would love Dale, not because he's the only one in the Chris Ridge Care Center who who visits your invalid father, and not because his huge, improbable body is ferried gracefully on an electric cart that's as stylish as a Vespa, but what she calls his hog. You would love him not because he has a voice that once sang in music halls across the country, or that he continued to sing in choirs until he could no longer stand. And you would love him not because he's put a hex on the dreaded physical therapist and gleefully translates the cafeteria menu into French. No, you would love him because like everyone else, no, you would love him because unlike everyone else, he says the center is not the worst place he's ever been. He tells you about the nurses getting him up in the morning. Not all of them are gentle. Not all of them are beautiful. But look at me, he says. And then, of course, he visits your father, who talks a kind of feeble gibber and has to lift his body to lift his head. Dale says he likes his sense of humor. And you can see your father likes him too and says something perhaps his word for Dale, when he hears Dale's cart entering his room. Um, and this is a little poem about the horseshoe crab. You, you all are familiar with horseshoe crabs around here, probably. Uh, well, they're not really crabs, you know that. They're not anything like crabs. Well, they look like crabs, but they're not. To a horseshoe crab. Strange arachnid distant cousin of deer ticks and potato bugs, those armored pellets who live between bark and wood, stone and dirt. Unlike them, you wash up hapless on beaches, more a bowl than a shoe. You come in squads after mating in the waters of your birth, dragging the useless scabbard of your tail. Often you die still attached, fucked but not fucking, Though once I love though once I watched the loved one drag her expired lover in a circle before she died too. And sometimes in your death throes, you capsize on the sand, which means you turn up, not down, and your legs row at nothing. So for a while you keep the flies away, but not the merciless fleas. And this is called an individual history. So I'll read two more poems. An individual history. This was before the time of lithium and Zoloft, before mood stabilizers and anxiolytics and almost all the psychotropic drugs, but not before Thorazine, which the suicidal Lachlan called handcuffs for the mind. It was before, during, and after the time of atomic fallout, Auschwitz, the Nakba, DDT, and you could take water cures, find solace in quarantines, participate in shunnings, or stand at Lourdes among the canes and crutches. It was when the march of time kept taking off its boots. Fridays when families prayed the living rosary 
to neutralize communists with prayer, when electroshock was electrocution and hammers recognized the purpose of a nail. And so if you were as crazy as my maternal grandmother was then, you might make the pilgrimage she did through the wards of state and private institutions and make of your own body a nail for pounding, its head sunk past quagmires and coup d'etats and disappearances, and in this way find a place in history among the detained and unparoled, an individual like her, though hidden by an epic of lean notation, marked Parkinsonian tremor, chronic paranoid type, a time when the animal slowed by its fate, was excited to catch a glimpse of its tail or feel through her skin the dulled over joy when for a moment her hands were still. And um, the last poem is called My Father's Knee. Uh, My father had a knee replacement at 92, uh, which was... An amazing thing because it, 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 it shouldn't have been approved, first of all. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy so old. So this is a poem, My Father's Knee. At 92, my father's knee is a harsh, dread spectacle betrayed by Bermuda shorts. Girdled and elastic, the cap collared like an eye is blind to everything but motion's pain. And this it sees so clearly, my father rarely moves except to pee or shit or eat or sleep, and sometimes even these he can't negotiate. And yet, the shored-up knee is beautiful in its boundary-stake refusal to yield to the arthritic foot that's ready for its shoe. Thank you. If you have, if you want to ask me questions, uh, that would that that's fine. If you want to.